This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. Welcome to Friend of Maryland. My name is Kat Pauze, and this is a fat-friendly space. Today on Friend of Maryland, I share some new calls, both for Fat Study Scholarship and for Fat Activists. I chat with Peggy Howell, a longtime NAFA board member, and I spotlight a piece from Ana Rodriguez about being fat and having an eating disorder. There are some really exciting opportunities coming up for individuals who are interested in maybe getting more involved with organized fat activism or participating in organized sessions of fat study scholarship. So first and foremost, um, the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, NAFA, uh, their board is currently accepting applications for new members. And that's going to end uh, in November, I think on November 15th. So um, as far as I know, you need to be a U.S. Uh, person to be on NAFA, although I, I could be really wrong about that. Um, obviously, if you if you give it a Google, if you reach out to them on social media, they could tell you a bit more. Um, but uh, just know that uh, Tigris, who is the new chair of NAFA, really has been taking that organization in some really new, exciting, and intersectional directions. So I would encourage you, if you maybe want to be able to be in a more organized kind of collective around fat activism, maybe serve on the NAFA board would be a good way to do that. Also, for those of you engaged in Fat Studies Scholarship, the Popular Culture Association Fat Studies Area is having their call for submissions for the PCA ACA conference. Now, that conference is currently scheduled for April 22 in Seattle. Of course, you know, that being uh, COVID allowing. Um, but uh you definitely, if you are engaged in Fat City Scholarship and you think you can get to Seattle in the United States in April of next year, I would strongly encourage you to consider some submitting. They're taking submissions through the 15th of November. Oh, look at that. Both of them are the 15th of November. Uh, and, you know, the PCA ACA uh, Fat Studies stream area uh, is without a doubt the best fat studies uh, conference in the United States. Um, it's, you know, uh, COVID aside, it's the only kind of yearly dedicated uh, fat studies uh, conference stream, if you would. And it's really fantastic. It's one of my um, greatest disappointments that I have not yet been able to organize to attend the PCA ACA conference. And it's something that I definitely am going to make sure that I do um, at some point during during my career. So those are two really great opportunities, uh, both U.S. specific, I'm afraid, but still great opportunities for people interested in engaging in some uh, collective uh, gathering about both fat activism and fat city scholarship.
today is Peggy Howell, a longtime NAFA board member who's recently retired as the public relations director, but is continuing to serve in other capacities. Peggy, thank you so much for coming on Friend of Maryland. Thank you for inviting me to join you, Kat. It's a pleasure. So, I mean, Pe- Peggy, you and I were chatting before I started the recording that it would probably take me days, if not weeks, to actually ask you all of the many questions I would want to ask about your incredibly long service that you've been giving to the fat liberation movement. We've only got 10 minutes though. So (laughs) um, could you, and I mean, you know, this is probably a hard thing to try to summarize quickly, but why have you been in this fight as long as you've been in it? Well, to tell you, frankly, I was a grown adult and, and uh, actually quite mature before I ever found out about size acceptance. I've been fat all my life. I was a fat kid, fat teenager, fat adult, but I never knew anything about it until I was, um, well, 20 years ago. So that would have made me about 54 when I first discovered it and jumped right in with both feet. Um, I was involved in size acceptance from about 2001 And in 2005, I was invited to be on the board of NAFA. And because of my uh, professional experience in advertising and promotions, I was asked to be the the PR director. It was just a good fit. Uh, I already knew how to write press releases and how to contact media and, um, and that sort of thing. So that was, that was a good fit. And, that's how I got started. Um, my sister and I had started a, a business called chunkybusiness.com at the time or earlier. And we went also to bashes, uh, which are more social events. I'm not sure if they have bashes where you are, um, but they have, have them all over the country. They're far more bashes, or at least there were at that time than they, uh, than their, are or were people fighting for fat liberation. Um, but we took our little business around and made connections and introduced people to um, fat liberation and NAFA, people who didn't know anything about it, who were just there for the social events. But that's, that's been uh, my history, um, a little bit about it. And I've stayed with NAFA on the board of directors as long as I have, because uh, there have been times that the organization has been really strong and lots of people involved. And then times where people have quit and gone about uh, doing other things. And um, I've been on the board as long as I have, because I felt that sometimes like if I didn't stay on, there might not be one. And uh, so there was a period of time where there was only Tiger Starlene and I, um, on the board and, um, it is a working board. So that meant there were three of us plus a few, um, volunteers who kept the organization going. And, um, and now we're back to becoming a stronger, um, organization again. And that's exciting. And so as of yesterday, it was official that I'm retiring as a public relations director. And that position is being taken by Amanda Cooper who also has a strong background, professional background in that kind of work. So, and being a younger person, 
NAFA will now have a younger public face. So uh, along with her and Tigris, um, we're not just going to have old white-haired ladies representing the activists. Peggy, what would you say um, in the almost 20 years that you've been involved with with NAFA, uh, and you've already actually kind of touched on a little bit of it, but like, what would you say has changed or has it changed the, the organization itself in terms of the work that it does and, um, and the focus? Well, the organization has tr- changed drastically during the time that I've been on board, and that's because the world has changed drastically. Uh, when NAFA first started, there wasn't the internet and the kind of connections that uh, people have now. So there were chapters in every all over the country and, and in every major uh, city in every state, there was a NAFA chapter. And so people met face-to-face for conventions and uh, by letters and things. And the advent of the internet changed a lot of that. Um, also the fact that a lot of people who um, had been one time involved in NAFA created these things that I talked about, bashes, and so those people, for those people who were just really interested in being social, they kind of went the way of uh, going to bashes and stuff. And um, the number uh, numbers reduced. And so now we're left with um, chapters closing because they people aged out. You know, there wasn't some new person to take place of the people who were running chapters and such. So it became more of a virtual organization. And it, it became almost completely uh, virtual just about the time I was coming on board because the office in Sacramento closed just before I was on the board of directors. And so then we were all totally online and uh, the website and chat rooms and such represented the organization. And, um, and our whole direction and how we reach people and what we do and what activism really is has changed and evolved tremendously over that period of time. And as you said, in a lot of ways to meet not only kind of the moment in which we find ourselves, but about um, perhaps better representing uh, the members of the community uh, that are, uh, that are active, that are interested um, and yeah, so exciting in a lot of ways. Um, I uh, was not, I wasn't active um, politically in fatness. I mean, I didn't even know anything about fat politics when I was still living in the United States. And so I was never really uh, engaged or even knew about NAFA until after I had moved to New Zealand. But, um, you know, the idea of a group, especially one that's been around as long as it has, that really is, you know, kind of working towards um, improving the lives of fat people, whether that's about fat liberation or just even providing safe social spaces, you know, for, for fat people to come together and um, be social and stuff is, is incredibly important. Now, Peggy, I know that you're, um, that you're currently really into Instagram and you've got a, a hashtag that you are trying to encourage people to use to kind of broaden out their own perspectives um, of fatness and, and fat people. So tell me a bit about hashtag old fatty. Well, in 2019, as we were preparing for the 50th anniversary of NAFA, I started watching some of the young influencers online and 
online and seeing what they were doing uh, on Facebook and um, then sort of just peeking on uh, Instagram, even though I wasn't on Instagram. And, um, and I thought, you know, these people are raising visibility for a reason. In most cases, influencers, it's for money, you know. But um, one of the things that has been, that I've heard so many times in this movement over the years, one of the arguments from um, the establishment, from the healthcare establishment, is that uh, fat is a death toll. You know, if you're a fat person, you're going to be dead by the time you're 30. And if you make it to 30, well, then you're going to be dead by the time you're 50. And quite frankly, I've been fat my whole life. I was a chubby baby, a chubby little kid, and a fat adult, and have been in my early adulthood, was doing the whole yo-yo dieting like everybody else. And so I have been a fat adult now for all my senior years. That year, I turned 72, and I decided I would launch an Instagram account. My handle is at Fat Acceptance Warrior. At Fat Acceptance Warrior. But the hashtag that I'm using and promoting is hashtag Old Fatty, because I'm putting it in the face of the establishment that I am now 74 years old, I still do things like, you know, go get my hair cut and get my nails done, my feet, my pedicure done. And I go to the gym and I work out occasionally and I grocery shop and uh, encouraging people to use things like the carts with baskets if they need them. That's what they're there for. Just because you're fat, don't feel embarrassed to use it. You know, if you need it, you have mobility issues, sit your butt down on that thing and use it. And so my statements are basically political, encouraging other people to just live their life and get out there and get in the faces of those who would do, encourage them to do otherwise. I mean, I think, Peggy, that there's probably quite a lot of other five people of various ages who um, have echoes of that own that those those four warnings in their own life um i mean i definitely had uh, especially healthcare people kind of be like well wait until you're 30 mm-hmm. you know like it's all going to go downhill apparently when i when i turned 30 and you know then when i passed that and you know my body just didn't implode then it became well wait until you're 50 and i'm almost 50 now and so like i <laughs> um you know, I'm sure the next bar will be, will you know, you'll implode at 60 or 70. So, um, you know, I think that for a lot of, a lot of us, especially as super fatties like me, it's really great, you know, to have a repository potentially of, of images of old fat people, you know, who have lived long and happy lives, happy fat lives and are continuing to, to live their lives to the best of their abilities. Um, and so I think that's really great. And I am definitely going to make sure that I keep an eye out um, for that old fatty tag. And I will definitely be contributing to it once, uh, once I get into that bracket as well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Peggy, it's been such a delight to, to chat with you today. Um, I feel like there's not enough I can say to be 
to like let you know the gratitude that I hold for you um, and for so many of the other people that have been at the forefront of this, you know, for the last several decades. So all I can really just say is, you know, a big fat thank you um, both for that work, but also for being willing to come on the show. It's been really lovely to chat with you. Well, it's been lovely chatting with you too. And big, big fat hugs um, virtually until we appreciate that in real life. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks, Peggy. Thank you. In the spotlight today is a piece by Anna Velasquez. It was published on March 27, 2019 on Wear Your Voice Mag, and it's entitled, I Am What They Fear, Healing from Eating Disorders While Fat. Quote, in my first year of college, during a course on health and wellness, the professor asked students to write down what word came to mind when we thought of our bodies. I wrote home, and my professor reacted by calling it sweet. It wasn't meant to be sweet, not necessarily. My body is my home, and it is a home that I have wanted to burn down, that I have tried to destroy for years, often with encouragement from family, friends, seemingly the whole world. It is a home that seemed to be locked from the outside, no escaping. I had been chubby since childhood, overweight as a teen, and hit the obese BMI range at around 20 years old. And with each pound I gained— the more and more the world told me they'd rather I destroyed my body, my home, than simply exist as I was. I suffered through months of restriction, eating one tiny meal a day and living on only coffee and tea, surviving off the scraps of encouragement and advice I found on toxic forums that encouraged starvation for beauty. At over 200 pounds, nobody seemed to care or notice. Binge eating, on the other hand, meant facing threats of having the pantry and fringe locked up. It meant being offered money to lose weight. It meant shame and forced diets that led to more secretive eating. As a young team, trips back to the motherland of Colombia meant hearing scathing comments about my size and my shape. Everything from the size of my feet to the curve of my thighs and the growth of my breasts were commented upon attributed to my mother's indigenous blood and my father's blackness. Don't you want to look like Barbie? My white relatives would ask in bewilderment, and I would smile and lie and tell them no. Didn't I want to permanently straighten my hair, stay out of the sun, lose weight until a man could wrap his big hands around my waist so his fingers touched? It was marginally kinder when they told me I was sweet but chunky. The truth is that for most of my life, I have wanted to live anywhere but here. I have wanted to tear apart the home that is my body with my bare hands when self-harm and starvation were not enough. I did not want a man to wrap his hands around my waist, too afraid of boys since the sexual molestation of my toddlerhood, an incident that might have led to my binge eating. And I was too afraid to touch the hands of the pretty girls I admired, the girls who would no doubt think I was a creep for wanting to kiss them. Even now, fully happy and proud in my bisexuality, I avoid intimacy because the very thought of someone seeing me nude leaves me immobilized with fear. Maybe the fantasy version of me, me at my ultimate goal weight, 
barely a hundred pounds and beautiful and in control, maybe she could be intimate with someone. I like to think of that body as my vacation home. I never finished that college course, a mental breakdown leading to a nearly three-year break from school. In the meantime, I was diagnosed with plenty of things, including an eating disorder. And while my therapist practically begged me to go to a center for treatment, I refused, knowing that my body was the ultimate fear of the much smaller girls who would be treated alongside me. How could I heal while accepting that my shape, size, and weight was the boogeyman of my peers? I could understand that we share an illness that makes us fear food and desire thinness, but the realities of a fat girl with an eating disorder and a thin girl with an eating disorder are so far apart, it's like a gorge divides us. Their illness makes them think they are fat. They fear becoming fat, while I am fat. Every word of self-hatred or terror about imaginalized fatness would feel personal, even if it wasn't. I felt treatment at a center would be nothing more than immersive self-harm. I feared it would be like pro-aniforms come to life and I would be left behind. So the treatment came in other forms and is still ongoing. It comes in the form of true, real, honest body positivity. The corniness in that sentence is not lost on me, but I couldn't be more sincere. Brand campaigns and ploys for my fat girl money seem to fall away in the face of genuine kindness. Friends who can relate to my feelings and even the friends who can't, but listen anyway. The teachers and relatives who let me in on why white supremacist ideals made my coming of age all the more hellish, far more than it had to be. Learning to work out because I enjoy getting stronger and not because I want to be thinner. I didn't have to rebuild my home. My friends and family and the teachers I never met all took me by the hand and walked me through each part of this home and asked me why I thought it was ugly, uninhabitable, condemned. They asked me who told me such a thing, and it went on long enough that today, on most days, I can look at myself and question the hateful way I've been forced to look at the only home I will ever have. The truth is, I did want to be thin. I wanted to be so thin that I would have to be hospitalized. I wanted this because I am ill and live in a world that enables and encourages my illness, only to turn around and say I could love myself if I buy products sold by size 10 models. It feels like nothing short of manipulation. I should buy flat tummy tees to be thin, but I should also buy cute underwear because a brand deemed to have average size women in their campaigns. I'm still ill and probably always will be. I will always be bipolar and have an eating disorder and have PCOS that makes me feel like my own body is trying to sabotage me. But I am also healing, and hopefully I will always be healing. I can appreciate the birth of my hips, the weight of my breasts, the shade of my eyes and skin and hair. Sometimes in this world, it is enough of a victory to not want to destroy yourself. And importantly, I am loved. I am loved by my father who boasts about how his mother has beautiful dark skin. He calls himself black with pride, and it's worth more than a million snide comments from racist distant relatives. I'm loved by my maternal grandmother who tells me all about the rituals that Spain tried to destroy that I have to write down and never forget. How can I be ugly when I look like the history she wants to keep alive? She calls me moon face for my round cheeks. And it's a sweet compliment. 
I cannot rely on the world to teach me to love myself, not while we live under white supremacy, capitalism, and misogyny, and every other kind of harmful power structure. These things do not love me, and I should not listen to them. Why listen something designed to harm me and belittle me? The purpose of oppression is to control you, not to be honest with you. My friends love me. When my friends give me words of love, I believe them. Absorb it, digest it, make it part of myself. End quote. Thanks for listening to another episode of Friend of Maryland. Friend of Maryland is brought to you by Manawatu People's Radio, triple nine AM. If you'd like to contact the show with questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions for topics or guests, you can email us at friendofmaryland at AOL.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Closing the show is Queen Latifah with Superstar.
If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.